Welcome everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Nefer, your host, and today we're actually going to have a discussion with another Paul. It's not too often I get to talk with another Paul, but it's going to be uh, Paul Pittman from Farmland Partners. And uh, Paul, how are things going? Uh, everything's great. It's, uh, it's a good year for uh, farmland valuation, so we're uh, we're happy. So I, I think right now, well, you're based sort of in Denver, but right now you're in, you're back in Illinois. Is that where your home farm or where you used to grow up? Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in Illinois. I went to the University of Illinois and got an ag degree. So I'm, a, I'm an Illinois farm kid, fundamentally, okay. but, uh, but I live in Denver now and the company's headquartered in Denver. Yeah. And, and actually I live, uh, we were talking beforehand and I live uh, not quite in Denver, but in the little suburb of Parker, which is about 30 miles due south of the airport. So like like we always do on these podcasts, we always like to get your background. So we've already mentioned that a little bit, but I'll let you do a little bit more detail on your background, you know, where you grew up, education, which you talked about a little bit already, but then your career before you decided to do farmland partners. Sure. So, you know, as I indicated a minute ago, I, uh, I grew up in a farm family. My dad was actually a high school teacher, not a not a direct farmer, because he was one of the younger children in a family with eight kids. So we did, we didn't live right yeah. on the farm, but we owned part of it. Um, and uh, you know, but I was always fascinated and spent all my summers with my grandparents and uncles on the farm. And so then went to University of Illinois. And those of you who are in my age bracket, I'm 61. You know, I graduated in 1985, which is the you know depths of the 1980s farm crisis. So there was no way I could come back to farming, which was really my dream. So I went, uh, you know, kind of luckily had had very good grades and got an opportunity to go uh, to Harvard uh, for a master's degree after college. And I went there and then I went to law school at the University of Chicago and I ended up on Wall Street as a finance guy, first as a lawyer and then as a finance guy. And I worked in, you know, kind of international finance in New York and London and started buying farms, uh, you know, in the mid 1990s uh, as an investment. And I kept doing that. And I did a lot of different stuff in my kind of finance and uh, Wall Street career. And I won't won't go into that. But I continued to take my capital and buy farmland. And then in approximately 2000 and eight or nine, I owned enough farmland that I focused just on my portfolio of farmland. And my original idea was to build a multi-state farm and farming operation. And I found that incredibly difficult to do. Um, And so I shifted gears and focused just on land ownership and renting that land to, to other farmers. Um, and so I, I built up a private business up to about 2013 and 14 that did that. And then in 2014, I took uh, about $70 million of farmland at the time and contributed it into the public company um, and took back shares uh, in the company. And we went public. And so we went public with about 70 million in assets. And now today we have about a billion three, a bill, we've been selling a little bit. We were up to about a billion four of assets. Now we probably have about a billion three of assets today. Um, and, uh, you know, built a pretty strong business across 16 or 17 states. Uh, Illinois is still our largest land holding. We have almost 40,000 acres in the state of Illinois alone. 
And, you know, one of the interesting things that we talked a little bit about it beforehand is, you know, Iowa is perceived to be, you know, sort of the best state and it's a good state, Illinois is a good state, but it's a little bit more volatile due to the fact that, you know, you can't have corporate ownership in Iowa, but you can have corporate ownership in Illinois. Sort of go through how that, you know, sort of maybe helps keep values a little less volatile in Illinois versus Iowa. Just just go through those ideas. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you looked at USDA land data, land value data, you'll see that um, Illinois has a more stable land values through time than Iowa. And I forget the exact numbers, but they're incredibly similarly priced for the high quality sort of average value of the land in the state. But what happens is, uh, is you know, I think there's really kind of two reasons uh, that Iowa land will will surge to slightly higher valuations in Illinois and then drop back down below Illinois and then back up. And, and the volatility is driven by, one, the thing you just said. There's an anti-corporate ownership law that restricts the um, – sort of large pools of capital that invest in farmland, whether it's from insurance companies or public companies like us uh, in Iowa. So we're not in that market in, a, in the bad times kind of putting in a floor where we are in Illinois. The second issue, though, is that, is that if you look statewide, the economy in Iowa is very, very much ag-focused. The economy in Illinois is a much more diverse. It's a higher population state quite a few more big cities, et cetera. And what that does is that I think the other demands on land and land usage dampens the ag-driven volatility that you see in Iowa. Uh, in Illinois, there's just less of that volatility. And that's why, you know, you see, you'll see slightly more stable pricing through time uh, in Illinois than Iowa. And then there are a few other states besides Iowa that have restrictions, and I don't know all of them. I, I think what North Dakota has those restrictions doesn't. Yeah, Nebraska North, have there, there, no. Well, there, there's there's nine states that had some version of a law restricting corporate ownership, um, but there's there's really only three states where where the law is strong and and at least apparently actively enforced. And that's really Iowa, uh, North Dakota, and uh, I think it's Minnesota. Um, the the Nebraska is the case that that's the place where the law was essentially overturned. Uh, okay. There was a, uh, I, I think it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, maybe just one of the appellate courts. I don't remember for sure, but somebody challenged that law ten or fifteen years ago, and they won that case. And the, the exact wording of the law is a little bit different in different uh, locations, uh, in different states. So, you know, maybe it's not a Commerce Clause violation in every state, but that, but that was the basis of why the law was overturned uh, in Nebraska. Um, I mean, it's a little odd when you start thinking about it this way. I mean, so, you know, the money that we have at Farmland Partners is really, you know, it's the pension funds of school teachers and firemen. It's small investors, et cetera. They pool their money into our public company, and then we buy farmland. So what Iowa is saying is, you know, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates can buy all the land they want in <laughs> Iowa, but my collection of, of capital pooled from people of modest means can't. Kind of strikes me as a little bit unfair. 
and you know, and unfair the wrong way. But you know, I'm not a voter in Iowa, so it's not up to me. Do you think eventually those laws will get reversed at some point uh, via maybe the legislature or the people understand? I, I, I doubt it, honestly. I, I mean, I think they're very populist and popular laws, and they, they sort of sound good. You know, the boogeyman of corporate ownership sounds like a thing to restrict. But if you unpeel the onion one more layer, uh, I, I actually think it's let's keep Iowa for the super rich guys. I mean, that's what the law really <laughs> That's what Iowa's really doing. Um, yeah. And let's not let let's not let the funds that pool capital from modest. I mean, you know, the Mormon Church can buy in Iowa. Like as I said, the well super wealthy families can buy in Iowa, but you can't, you know, you can't take twenty five firemen and put their money together and come to Iowa and buy a farm. That'd be corporate ownership. That, you know, that yeah, doesn't make any sense. So um, we know that during the eighties, which you and I are about the same age, I'm actually a little bit older than you, but uh, you know, that was not a great time for, well, actually let's back up. You know, the perception is I think that land values drastically dropped in the eighties. And the reality is maybe it didn't really drop. And then also we sort of had a little bit of a farm recession during let's say 14 through 19. And I think the perception is land values dropped, but I think you're going to say, or, or let the listeners know out there that that really didn't happen. So I'll let you talk about that. Yeah. So, so, so in the mid 1980s, you did have a couple of, I mean, that was a very, very unique time. I mean, if you recall, we had, you know, super, super high interest rates. The farm economy was in trouble. That was the embargo of of uh, wheat, uh, you know, by R Russia. There's a lot of different issues going on. Um, and you uh, you did see farmland values truly drop. Um, and, you know, they, did, they recovered pretty quickly. I'd have to look at a chart to tell you exactly when, but I think within four or five years, they had recovered above uh, the numbers that they had right before you hit the farm crisis in the early 80s. But that that era is incredibly unique. Um, and what and, and that's the only time you've really seen farmland values go down. What you've seen happen in the, the time period you just referred to, kind of 2015 to 2020, is farm economy wasn't very good in that period. And you saw farmland values stay flat. And in fact, they even creeped up a little bit, a couple percent a year. But they they largely kind of flatlined. That is the more normal situation in a down cycle for the farm economy. Um, you will see farmland valuations kind of level out and stay the same or just gradually rise. Um, you don't really see them go down. And there's some there's some really kind of logical reasons for that when you think about it for a minute. And, and first, it's important to, to say that, you know, this analysis is related to, you know, high quality corn belt farmland, and maybe high quality delta and southeast as well. If you get away from those core ag regions, it, you know, there is more volatility. But in those in those core ag regions, I think the reason you see it flatline is two two things. 
Number one, that quality of land is incredibly scarce on a worldwide basis. There are only small pockets of this super productive land. You know, we have a big pocket of it in the Midwest, in the U.S. You have a, another bit of it in the Black Earth region of Ukraine and, and Russia. You have another area down in the very best parts of, of Argentina, southern Brazil. But, I mean, it's just not that much of that. Uh, quality of land available. So just raw scarcity keeps it from going down. And then at the same time, uh, you know, related to that, everybody knows, or at least I shouldn't say everybody, but everybody's a serious farmland investor, knows that the farm economy will come back. You know, what happens is we overproduce. Uh, American farmer and other worldwide farmers are incredibly efficient. And you gradually overproduce. But when total global food demand is continues to gradually rise, um, you're going to eventually end up with a short crop and back into a boom time like we've had for the last few years uh, in terms of commodity prices. And if you went back and did a long-term chart on corn price, I mean, Paul, you're old enough to know this. I've sold a lot of corn in my life under $2 a bushel. Yeah. And, and so you know, you get these plateaus, right? We sit there at a buck 75 or two bucks for a long, long time. Then we got a 350 or four. And then we got a, you know, and now we're getting like a five to seven bracket. And you get these increased plateau levels. But at the same time, look at trend line yields per acre. So revenue per acre it's not about corn price or bean price. It's about revenue per acre. That's the number you need to understand to value farmland. And even if the price goes down, you've over, you know, when you're growing corn yields roughly 2% per annum, beans in the same bracket, maybe a little less, that compounds over time to incredibly higher revenue, even if corn price doesn't change. And so, you know, that, that's that's the reasons that, in, you know, my opinion, I just don't see the farmland go down in value. It's a, a it's this it's this point of, of scarcity. Plus, you know, everyone knows that 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 global food demand increase just keeps coming. And and wow. my view, I, you know, I don't know if that goes on forever. There's a lot of things going on worldwide demographics. But if you dig into World Bank numbers, for example, there are still a lot of people. I mean, something approaching 100 million people still in chronic undernourishment. And, you know, I don't mean, you know, like my children who say I'm starving. That means they haven't had an ice cream cone in two hours. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about truly starving yeah. in, in parts of Asia and Africa. And look, until those people get get a, you know, middle class lifestyle caloric intake, um, you know, the similar to what you'd have in Western Europe or the U.S., um, you're going to still see growth, food demand increase, whether or not you see population increase. So, yeah. Yeah. well, I'd like to maybe veer off a little bit and just talk about the structure of the company, Farmland Partners. Uh, it's a little bit unique. There's uh, really only two publicly traded real estate investment trusts. Uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Maybe why you decided to do a publicly traded REIT instead of maybe doing a private REIT or a private fund. I, I just was curious as to why you lean that way versus the other. 
Yeah. So the 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 um. So we are REIT. We're traded on the New York Stock Exchange. You know, stock trades every day. There is one other company with our similar structure to us called Gladstone Land, um, and uh, but everybody else is private. And so the reason that that Farmland Partners um, is a public company, and and reason I founded it um, as a public company, was is is that. Um, my view is the challenge investor ownership of farmland has the following challenge in the underlying farm economy. When you sell a farm, there is an underlying tenant who gets hurt. And in any in almost any private vehicle, there will be a relatively high volume of farm sales because eventually that investor wants their capital back and they want their money back and they want their profit from appreciation in their pocket instead of rat tied up in the farm. What And so the private vehicle means that there will be relatively rapid turnover uh, of the farmland. And that has a bunch of different problems. Number one, I think you get better stewardship of farmland with long-term hold periods. But for the underlying tenant, it's really disruptive to their operation to lose, you know, 10 or 20 percent of their farmable acres because the farm went up for sale. Um, the In a public vehicle, the investor can get their liquidity by selling in the stock market. You don't have to sell the farm to get your money back. And that's the fundamental reason that I thought being public made sense. And that is you could separate the ability for the farming operation for the tenant. Um, you know, I, I, I will tell you, it hasn't worked perfectly. The public market doesn't necessarily fully understand our story and the appreciation side of our story. But, you know, the, the logic was, was what I said. It was really to separate the ability to have liquidity in the asset class without messing up the underlying farm operation. And, and because you are a REIT, I'm, I'm guessing, um, and being a CPA, I know enough about REITs to be dangerous as far as the taxation and so on, but I'm guessing most of your leases that you have with a farm tenant is going to be a cash lease or maybe some type of a cash bonus type lease. You wouldn't typically have any type of crop share lease, or would you? Yeah, well, we, we have some. I mean, we're very driven by what's sort of the norm in uh in the different regions, you know, our philosophy is that the that the farming markets um, are really pretty sophisticated. You know, it's it's not like there hasn't been institutional outside capital in agriculture until recently. I mean, there are, there has been for a long time. It just tended to be, you know, a church or a lo the local lawyer or the local accountant or the local owner of the car dealership. You know, there's lots and lots. You go to suburban Chicago or Indianapolis. You know, a third of the families in those towns still have ownership of farmland that might have been something inherited or whatever. I mean, there's there's non-farmer money in the ag market and has been. Um, but what grows up over time is a certain style of doing business in different regions. We 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 will prefer when possible to be cash rent. It just makes the accounting of the process easier. There's also some participating rent tax related issues that cause us problems as a REIT. Uh, but 
you know, we do, do we are able to do crop share in limited circumstances. We do it in the eastern Colorado and western Kansas, for example, because that's very much the norm because of the volatility in those regions of of yield. Um, but you know, you're you're right that we're we're overwhelmingly cash rent uh, oriented um, in our portfolio. And in today's environment, what is the typical cash return that you might get on a typical high quality farm that you're buying in let's say Illinois and so on? I mean, are yeah. we still down in that two, three percent, three might be on the high side? Is that is that what we're looking <laughs> yeah, at? Yeah, I mean I mean in Illinois, you're you know, we're we're we push our rents pretty hard over time, but your entry cap rate, meaning the first year of ownership on high quality land in Illinois. It's it, you know it's frankly hard for us to buy right now because most you know you go to an auction or a private treaty sale at first year cap rate, uh, meaning you know purchase price per acre divided into the to the rent per acre, probably two and a half percent. I mean it's it's a tough tough market at two and a half percent, and then you know you got property taxes, so you you know your net operating income uh, is is even lower than two and a half. We we tend to try to fight to get at least three, which has really made buying in the core of the Corn Belt hard for us right now. But but you know th these things ebb and flow a little bit, and the cap rate will be, you know, the cap rate will be better a few years from now than it is right now. But it's yeah. never super high. Um, but but I want to add one thing to that. What people forget is that rents grow around three percent per annum. And you know, there's a range around the three percent, call it two to four or so. But the rents really grow. So if you look at a farm, for example, I said I own a farm that I bought in the mid-1990s. That farm I bought in the mid-1990s, it's got like a 35% cap rate now compared yeah. to the purchase price I paid for that farm. I mean, literally, I'm getting a third of the purchase price in annual rent. And this is in an asset class where you don't incur landlord costs beyond property tax to any meaningful degree. So you really do get to keep, you know, you're in an apartment building and rent keeps going up, well, your common area charges go up and your heating and your roofing, and you got to replace the roof and redo the siding and repave the, the parking lot. In a piece of farm ground, the property tax is really the only landlord expense you have. And so you get that you know, you get your rent increasing faster than your property taxes, which isn't very hard. You build a substantial, you know, uh, increasing cap rate against original purchase price over time. Plus, as you say, that increase in the net rental income then also sort of drives the fact that your farmland is going to appreciate. I mean, you got the, oh, yeah. the return, yeah, yeah. you got the compounding. And, and I was just looking at the, you know, USDA came out with their annual farmland value report last week and you know their average and this is all the states in the country uh you know their average back in 2009 was 2090 dollars per acre now this year it's 4080 so roughly you've had a double in land values in roughly 14 15 years if you look at the rule of 72 you know that's that's compounded at four five six percent plus like you say you're two to three percent compounding each year of cash return, that's a pretty nice return. It's negative correlated to the stock market and so on. So uh, 
you know, you have a lot of investors out there like yourself, like myself, that uh, like buying farmland. No, it's, I mean, I think a, a, a couple things are, that are important to, to, to grasp here. About two thirds of your total return to the farmland asset class comes from appreciation and one third comes from current yield. And obviously, you know, it's a little bit different in different types of farms and over different periods of time, but, the, but it's, it's in that range. This is an asset class where the big driver of value is that is appreciation um and and that means for a lot of people it's a tough asset to get their head wrapped around but it is a true wealth creator and remember that appreciation element is tax-free compounding yeah so so if you you know if you have an ability to kind of support yourself uh, from other sources of income you know the truth is you'd rather have it all as appreciation yeah. Because that's where you, that's a tax efficient way to compound, and eventually there'll be a tax bill if you go to sell it. But but there's at least not not every year. And so um, you know my view is that that you know the asset. I mean, I spent as we said earlier, I spent a decade of my life on Wall Street, but I have become wealthy off of long term farmland ownership um, more than the stock market. You know the. Long-term returns to the asset class are a total of around 11% per annum. Um, you know, that's very long-term. The numbers you cited recently are correct. In the last decade or so, it's been more like seven or eight um, total return. Um, and that, you know, what, what's going on here is lower inflation and lower interest rates led to lower, you know, return on the asset class. And, you know, as we've now entered a higher inflation era, you know, I think you'll see the number come back up. But it is, you know, this is a this is a great long-term wealth creator as an investment, um, and as I said earlier, it's it's just it's underpinned by that sort of glacial pace. But it is a but it is a glacial pace of gradual food uh, demand increases in the face of ever greater land scarcity, and that's just well, that, that's the story of the asset class. Yeah, and, and you look at a stock that you buy, let's say 50 years ago, the best stock you could buy was IBM, Eastman Kodak, uh, probably not IBM, but Eastman Kodak or Enron. Enron, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, Enron was a very hot stock, but it basically went to zero. You're never going to see that land, that high quality land in Illinois go to zero. It might drop down a little bit, but as you said, I think the I think the study I saw was the longest period ever to have land values recover the drop, and it was probably during the 80s, was that five to six year period. So, uh, um, you know, so it's a pretty good deal. On your, on your investing in land, and as you say right now, it's a little tougher in Illinois, but Illinois is your number one area. What are some of the other concentrated areas that you have land investments right now? Yeah, we've um, so we have we have really big holdings in um, uh, we we've historically had pretty big holdings in eastern Colorado and and western uh, uh, Kansas. Although we actually in the last week or so sold many of those assets, and the reason we sold those assets is we have long term water concerns in that region. Yep. And decided yeah. to lighten up, but but I mean we've been there. We we have uh, pretty strong and significant holdings in the Delta. You know, after the core of the Corn Belt, the Delta, meaning Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, 
you know, that's the second most important ag region in the U.S. for the main commodities. Um, and then we also have pretty strong holdings out in the southeast uh, in North Carolina, South Carolina in particular. Um, we all we do have a specialty crop exposure. About 20, 25 percent of the portfolio is in California, uh, you know, and it's citrus and almonds and things like that. Um, and again, we're you know, we're kind of lightening up there over time again because of long term water concerns in that region. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, again, we talked uh, beforehand a little bit. The fact that I was from Washington State, we got pretty good water up there and pretty good growing conditions. And uh, I think that at least continue for the foreseeable future. Yep. Now on your, typically when you're buying land um, and maybe in the beginning it was different, maybe it's different now, what would be the amount of leverage that you might put on uh, the land purchase? Yeah, we, we tend to put approximately 50% leverage on any on on any farm we buy and choose to lever and let me unpack that just a little bit we have some farms where we have no leverage so leverage overall in the companies around 40 percent but if we're going to finance with any amount of debt for simplicity we put on 50 percent the reason we use 50 percent is we're generally looking for an interest only mortgage uh, as opposed to an amortizing mortgage because for us, an amortizing mortgage is just, a, you know, it's a we're a long term vehicle. There's no there's no value to us in paying it down and having to reborrow it and pay the fees and the legal expenses and everything. So we're looking for interest only instead of amortizing. And most of the major lenders in the ag space uh, just don't want to be above a 50 percent loan to value on an interest only loan, which, you know, which makes sense from their, their risk management perspective. I understand why they take that position. Is there a certain segment of the financial industry then that you deal with? Is it farm credit? Is it insurance companies? Is it yeah? We we um, we we borrow we borrow from everybody that's uh, that's big in the ag space. Uh, you know, it's MetLife, Farm Credit, um, Farmer Mac, Rabobank. Um, you know, it's uh, there's a lot there's a lot of good strong lenders out in the market space, and we're happy to work with them all. Okay. Okay. Well, I think Paul will take a quick break and then we'll come back and maybe dive into, uh, I usually end with about three or four questions. And so uh, we'll just go ahead and take a quick break right now. Sounds great. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? 10 years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi a Blue Diamond Farming Company in Jessup, Iowa, know RoboAgri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site, or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, RoboAgar Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, RoboAgar Finance. Welcome back 
everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. We're going to, I'm Paul Neen for your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Paul Fitman of Farmland Partners. Uh, Paul, I think we've covered most of it. I guess one question I would have for you before we go into some of uh, my, my typical ending questions is, you know, we've seen a rapid increase in interest rates, but if we ignore everything since 2008, uh, maybe late seven, 2007, we go back to 2007, interest rates are almost exactly the same as they are now. You know, we had sort of an artificial great recession, you know, caused rates to drop down. So do you see those interest rates really hurting farmland or do the fact that we are having more inflation and so on and so forth that we're really going back to a norm? I, I guess I'd be curious what, what your thoughts on that are. So uh, my sense is that uh, high interest rates don't have nearly as big an impact on farmland valuation as you might think. And there's really two reasons for that. One is that high inflation tends to lead to high appreciation. And there's obviously a lag. But, you know, the core of the corn boil the last three, four years, you're talking 10% per annum appreciation. So, um, you know, people love to see that even if the interest rates are high. So, the, so, you know, the correlation of high interest rates and inflation, which is so strongly correlated to farmland itself, means that high interest rates isn't necessarily a negative to the asset class. The, the second thing, though, is that there's only around 13% debt on a nationwide basis on farmland. I mean, I mean let me repeat that because it's a shocking number. 13% of the farmland base in the United States is, is held in the form of a debt instrument. You know, 87% is equity. There's just not that much debt in that market. So that, that means two things. So a high interest rates you have right now, if you own your farm with no debt, it's not affecting your, your, you're getting all the benefits of the inflation side and not taking any higher cost. Now, people like us who, you know, have 40% debt on the company, we've got higher costs for a while. A market, for example, has punished us for that. Um, it doesn't make any sense because the underlying assets are appreciating like mad, but it hurts the cash flow. And if you're very cash flow focused as a valuation tool, it, it hurts somebody like us. But it's, um, you know, this this is the reason that that, you know, when you read a, oh, interest rates are going up, farmland's going to go down. Well, wait a minute. There's just not that much debt on farmland. And a lot of the purchasers, a lot of the buyer, you know, you talk, go talk to a, you know, there's a reason that the farm credit guys and the and the they're all they all show up at farm auctions, uh, not because they're going to buy because they're trying to lend money. And they always will tell you that the biggest competition they face is not their other lenders. It's just that the people have cash. And so they don't, they don't likely, uh, they don't want to borrow. You know, there's just not that much debt in the space. It's the big driver. Well, and I think a lot of the farmers right now, they've had three or four pretty good years. They've developed high working capital. If you're going to that auction and you got four or five really strong bidders bidding, at least two or three of those bidders are probably paying cash anyway. I mean, so yeah. until, and, and, you until know, they, they, may borrow, they may borrow, they may borrow a tiny bit of money uh, to get yeah. that transaction done because they're not just. But but remember, if they 
let's say that theoretical farmer, you know, theoretical farmer farming 7,000 acres probably owns two to 3,000 of those acres himself and rents the rest. Well, the two to 3,000 acres are fully paid for. And some of those acres have to be paid for unless they've, you know, because they inherited them from their grandparents or their mom and dad or whatever, right? So they've been in the family for a long time. You're going to take the cash flow from the from the two or three thousand acres and pay off the note on the new eighty or one hundred and sixty you bought in just a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So just so this this it's it's always a uh, you know it's always just a kind of knee jerk reaction. High interest rates are going to collapse farmland values. Well, I mean, Exhibit A to show that's not true is the last couple of years farmland. Yeah. You know. And I'm not saying high interest rates is great. It, it, it certainly will dampen the market because there's some level of buyers that are going to borrow money, but it's not nearly the big negative that everybody thinks it is. Now, the 1980s is an example the other way. <laughs> if you take interest rates at 13%, spend a minute thinking about this. This is a 3 to 5% return business, and if you have interest rates at 13%, it kills you. On a cash flow basis. And so far, higher interest rate environment is less than really a year old. The 80s, the late 70s through the mid 80s, that was a six, seven year higher interest rate environment. We're certainly nowhere near that right now. That's right. And it, and it, and it was a high, higher rate and it had gone on for longer. Plus, we had the big, huge oil shock. You know, we That's went right. from, uh, I, I remember looking at some invoices that my parents had farming and uh, diesel was 13 cents a gallon 17 cents a gallon and then uh, you know three or four years later it was 72 cents a gallon people yeah. complain about gas when it's five dollars a gallon uh, that's still compared to the oil shocks of the late 70s that's really nothing so yeah the, the other thing going on is on a worldwide food demand basis you know the the, the 80s was a lane was an era of fundamentally a lot of surplus grain you know the government warehouses were full of you know cheese and eggs and, and yep. egg powder and and commodity crops and you're in a really different situation now um you know the, the, the you know thankfully a massively greater portion of the world's population can afford can afford a comfortable diet and a decent diet and you know when when you think about i mean just think about the fact that in a decade ago nine, 10 billion bushel crop was a big, big crop. And now we're talking a 15 billion bushel crop. Yep. What's yep. actually amazing is that we're, we're consuming all 15, you know, all 15 billion, you know, people yep. talk about carry out. Oh my God, we're going to have a 2 billion bushel corn carry out. It's the wrong way to think about it. Go do a, go do a days of use as opposed to a purely uh, carry out number, and you'll find out that we haven't increased the carry out on a days of use. Uh, you know, and, and if you need to explain to your listener group what days of use is, you, I'm sure you understand it. Um, it. It's not as big a surplus as it feels like. We, you know, we're not heading for as big a surplus as we might think we are. Yeah, exactly. Well, all right, I always have three or four questions I ask at the end, so I'm going to go ahead and start on those. Um, who was your mentor, maybe in Wall Street career, or maybe as far as deciding to do uh, farmland partners? I'm just curious if you had any mentors in that area. 
Well, I, I, I kind of had, I kind of have two in my, uh, in my life and I'll, I'll tell you who that one is my father. And I'm sure that many farm kids like me had a, you know, my dad always said the harder you work, the luckier you will get. And that's kind of been the story of my life. And I learned that really from him. But the, the other mentor I have is, is Murray Wise. Uh, it's a well-known name in the farmland investing space. And, you know, we now own the Murray Wise brand and the Murray Wise Associates company. But Murray, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know him, based in Champaign, Illinois, he was the kind of one of the early pioneers in bringing institutional capital to farmland. And the Westchester Group, which is now owned by TIAA, was, you know, a company he founded and built and then eventually sold. Um, and so he has, you know, uh, you know, he's sort of been a significant influence over a long, long period of time and how I think about the asset class. Yeah, and I've had two podcasts with Murray, and I'm looking forward to having another one with him. So I, I definitely uh, understand what you're saying there. So uh, now I'm guessing that you probably like me don't have a lot of spare time, but when you do have spare time, what type of hobbies do you do? Well, I, I uh, one of the reasons I live in Colorado is I love to ski, so I spend a lot of time skiing. And I also, you know, spend quite a bit of time fishing and hunting. Those are really my avocations. I, you know, I often go to Canada canoeing. Uh, I was up there just a week or two ago fishing. And, um, you know, that's uh, that's how I spend my spare time. I'm, I'm married and have two daughters. Uh, so I spend some time, uh, you know, some of my time hanging out with them. But uh, uh, those are the things I do in my spare time. So what's your favorite place to go fishing? My favorite place to go fishing is uh, is here in central Illinois on my family's kind of farm. Um, I, you know, when I started to be a successful land investor, I purchased a reclaimed coal mine in west central Illinois and have turned that, you know, it's a little over a thousand acres with probably 450 or 500 acres of it that are lakes and ponds. And I've turned that into you know, a pretty strong private fishery. Uh, and I love fishing here. I mean, we've got all the warm water species like the bass and the catfish and the bluegill and the crappie, but we also have northern pike and muskie and walleye because the lakes are deep, having been former coal mines. Um, yeah. And so it's my uh, it's my little retreat and escape. And, and uh, other than the fact you can you know, you, while you're sitting in your pond, when you're, while you're sitting in your uh, John boat fishing, you can see cornfields. Uh, you would never, you would never believe you're in Illinois. Well, yeah. And then is there anything that keeps you up at night? Oh, uh, you know, running and running a public company keeps you, uh, keeps you nervous all the time. And, and obviously I've got a great team. Uh, you know, the current CEO of the company, uh, Luca Fabri, cause I'm today just chairman. Uh, he, he and I have worked together for something approaching 25 years. Uh, so I'm guessing he sleeps even less than I do, but, but, uh, but being, a, being at or near the top of a public company keeps you nervous all the time. And then finally, uh, what's your uh, definition of either success in farming or success in business, you know, either one. Well, you know, I, I tend to, I tend to look at that as like a success in life, uh, question when I'll convert it to that. Cause that's the, the question I think I can answer. 
you gotta, you gotta chart your own course. I mean, I tell, when I speak to like college grads or young people at some event, uh, entrepreneurial event or something, I always say, you know, keep up with the Joneses is a recipe for unhappiness. Uh, you gotta figure out what it is you really want. And that's different for every human being and go get that. And you will be, uh, you know, it's, it is unfortunately a one-way road for all of us, Paul. And uh, yeah. Yeah. you need yeah. to you need to live your life, you know, as your life. Not, and I don't mean that in a UBU selfish sense. I think that's a mistake too. But don't don't let somebody else define how you measure success. I mean, I have, you know, I look at my own life. I have plenty of money and quite a bit of career success. And that makes me very happy. But what makes me even happier is, you know, I got a great wife and a healthy kids and my health is still good. And I get to do fun stuff and I get to, you know, drink a beer and smoke a cigar with my buddies. You know, these are the things that are really important to me and uh, I think people got to keep that in perspective. Totally agree. And, and just like for myself, I got to play a couple hours of pickleball last night, didn't injure myself had a great time and uh you know that's that's uh almost more important than even having this podcast yeah and at, at, and, at, at, and at our age i worry about injuring myself walking to the refrigerator yeah 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 <laughs> well i i always worry pickleball because i played it uh, well i played other type sports like that and i tend to pull a calf muscle and knock on wood i haven't done that this year so that's a good sign good for you Anything else you'd like to add, Paul? I mean, uh, I, I told you we'd take about 30 to 45 minutes, and that's where we're at. No, I think uh, I think you've mostly covered it. This is great. So uh, okay. uh, thank you very much, and look forward to meeting up with you out there in Parker sometime over a, over a steak or a breakfast or something. Okay. Sounds good. And again, this was the Farm CPA Podcast presented by Top Producer. This is Paul Neefer, your host, signing off. Uh,